Hey guys, Montel here, and thank you so much for tuning into this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And I am really so excited to have my guest on today because I really feel as if this is an area that I've wanted to school myself on for the last 10 years of my life and really never took the time to sit down and do so. When you look up and start thinking about the idea of we who are all differently abled in our society and whether or not all of us are included in our society. In the last five to 10 years, there seems to be a segment of our society that no matter how often we discuss, we kind of keep them on the periphery of our society. And I, and I really don't understand why. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out because, you know, I have members of my family that are part of this community. I have people that I work with that are part of this community. And I'm very, very open with trying my best to do whatever I can to help support them. Whereas I find other people kind of still shy away or try to change the conversation. They don't even want to have the conversation. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about people who are identified as being on the autism spectrum. And, you know, if you look that up and you Google it, they say that right now, one in 59 adults, one in 40 uh, children in this country are on the spectrum when it comes to autistic spectrum disorder. And when we look at the children, one in 40, those children are growing up to be adults and want to be contributing members of our society. And we still haven't figured out how to bring them in and open doors to say, you know, we understand and recognize just like there are different shades of color of every human being on this planet. There are different shades of autism. And those different shades offer an incredible amount of texture to our huge mosaic. You know, uh, you know we as a country, we, we were founded on this idea of being a melting pot. And I never believe that. America is more of a stew. I mean, you know, when you, you, you think of a melting pot and a stew, a melting pot means that everything will dissolve and become homogeneous and look like one thing. That's not soup. That's not a melting pot. I mean, truthfully, we, you know, I love to go and eat a good beef stew or a chicken stew or, you know, a turkey stew where I can taste the carrots. I can taste the onions. I can taste the potato. I can taste the green bean. I can taste every single individual component, all of which comes together to make for the most delicious meal I think I have. And that's the way I think we need to look at our society and especially now when we are so troubled in trying to figure out who we as Americans are going to be for the next millennia, um, or whether or not we are even going to be an America in the next millennia. And there are people who are working very hard at trying to tear this down. And, you know, when we look at all the arguments, we look at all the dissent, you know, it seems as if it's just polarized in one direction, but that's not true. You know, we look at our society and think that we have big difficulty in dealing with black and white. That's bullshit. We have big difficulty in dealing with any difference. And so once we have figured out how we can divide and try to conquer because of color, then we'll try to divide and conquer because of, you know, I don't know, ability. And then we'll try to divide and conquer because of what we think may be differences in ability. You look back at societies that have reigned supreme on this planet. A lot of people don't know a lot of things about 
human nature. And I'm not talking about going back two and 300 years. I'm talking about go back 40, go back 50, go back 60. Let's look at what Hitler was trying to do. Hitler was trying to breed out any person in the Aryan race that had any form of birth defect whatsoever. So any person that they felt had any form of cognitive disorder, they were going to sterilize so that they could not have any further children. And don't just think it was the Germans and the Nazis, because we know for a fact that when we look at countries like Sweden, we think Sweden is such a beautiful place to live on on this planet. Well, you know, Sweden's purged about 40% of its population. And they purged it by sterilizing people forcing people into forced sterilization so that they could not have children. You wonder why a country like Sweden has only had a population of 8 million people for the last 60, 70 years. It's because there was a period of time in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, and the 60s when you know everybody was really thinking in a eugenic way that they could literally call their herd, get rid of anything that wasn't homogeneous to them. And you know we're looking at a society right now that's pitting brother against brother, cousin against cousin, do not think for one second that once they purge what they think may be who they don't like, they will start looking to purge anybody else. And I feel like we don't even take the time to look at those who are on this spectrum and consider how much more they have to offer. And they have so much to offer. And that's why our guest here today, I'm, I'm just blown away. Our guest is a disability rights activist serving as a member elect of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives for the 36th District, located in Western Pennsylvania. She is openly LGBTQ plus woman and the first openly autistic person elected to the president to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. She's is a union organizer, a community leader, an advocate, a role model. She's co-founded the Pittsburgh Center for Autistic Advocacy in her, and in her own words, she is fighting for the world where we never have to hide from who we are to be seen as capable of serving our communities. Jessica Benham, thank you so much for being here and being a part of Free Taking with Montel. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation that we're going to have. I am so excited. I, I was, you know, we, we, touched on part of that conversation before we began. And I want to go back and redo that again, because I think people need to understand, I, I, I feel as I am, you know, ignorant in some ways that I've not taken the time to learn more about people with the autistic spectrum on the spectrum, where I've had so many members of my family, you know, I've got a, a cousin who has an autistic son, I've got a, uh, my, my wife's side, we have a a cousin who also has an autistic daughter. And I will tell you that it was very interesting. I don't think I was the reason why she was identified, um, but you know, she was born into a family that literally tried to completely ignore her symptoms. And when I was introduced into that family, I, I first day I saw her, I was like, are you guys, aware that she may be slightly autistic. And, you know, I was met with, no, no she's not. She's just a little slow. No, no, no. And then eventually the family started looking into services and trying to figure out how to help guide her. I think that they lost some opportunities that, you know, with a child who I think would be probably in a different position today where they were more proactive when she was younger. So why don't you help us 
understand. Now, first off, you know, I, I should say <laughs> you're on the autistic spectrum, but you know, I, my goodness, but girl, you've got a bachelor's degree in political science and communication at Bethel University in Minnesota, master's degree in communication at Minnesota State University, a master's degree in bioethics at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, you're completing your doctorate in communications at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, excuse me, you know, that's not what we think of when we think of a person who is autistic. So why don't you help me out a little bit? I think I asked, the first thing I asked you was, what was the difference between autistic and people that are on, you know, uh, with other spectrum disorders, and we, which we used to, um, so sorry, my brain just slipped our term. Um, Asperger's. Uh, Asperger's. 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 Yeah, Asperger. I'm sorry. I, I, I was throwing that term out since our conversation before we started. But what's the difference between people? Because two and three years ago, five years ago, people who had Asperger's were considered to be on the Asperger's spectrum. I, I got confused. I'm sorry. Please help me. It's definitely oh. confusing. So the manual that medical professionals use to diagnose people with all kinds of different disorders and medical conditions changes every once in a while. And so it used to be that Asperger's was the term that was used to diagnose certain people who now in the latest manual are considered to be part of the autism spectrum. So that's the difference there. And people often talk about the Asperger's side of the spectrum being more high functioning and then you have the more low functioning. And I think it's hard to make that comparison because people who are autistic have a variety of gifts and talents that we don't always acknowledge. So to say that somebody is high functioning, which is often a term applied to me, is difficult. Sure, I have a lot of education. I have studied how people, particularly non-autistic people, communicate so that I'm better able to build that bridge to communicate with folks who aren't on the spectrum. And I'm good at that. Maybe you could say I'm high functioning at that. But there are other things that I'm not so great at. I don't always pick up on those subtle social cues. I'm, I'm good at, at pretending I'm making eye contact with people, but really I'm just staring at your forehead. <laughs> and so when we think about folks who are on the spectrum, I often say it's good to think about people in terms of the support that they need. So we might say that I have fairly low support needs. I don't need a ton of support outside of my network of close friends and, and family and the coping skills that I've learned for myself and that other people might need higher levels of support. But we also need to reconsider what we value in society. People will say that they value me because I'm somebody who is an elected official. I'm a state representative. But I believe that all autistic people, all people generally, have something to contribute to society. And it's time we recognized that. Absolutely. Let's let's go back to your childhood. When were you, I, mean, I guess, were you diagnosed or were, did your, your parents recognize early on that there was something slightly different with Jessica? Oh, they definitely recognized early on. That is for sure. But like a lot of kids in the early 90s, there was this resistance around diagnosis and labels. Uh, We had school professionals throw out the idea that I might have ADD or, or things like that. But much like that situation in your own family, my parents were resistant to the idea of labeling me. And it had some very negative consequences. So I was in a public school up till the age of second grade. And I remember this parent-teacher conference 
so vividly and overhearing my teacher tell my parents, you know, she's just a bad kid. And I think, you know, if my second grade teacher could see me now, she wouldn't believe her eyes. So that's one of the things when we're talking about high functioning versus low functioning, you don't know how a kid is going to turn out. But as it turns out, I wasn't diagnosed until adulthood, which is common for many autistic women. The diagnosis, the the standards are based off of of studies done on men. And so it is very common for autistic women to be diagnosed much later in life. So I was 19. And is is it also true that the, the diagnosis comes more prevalently or is more prevalent in men than it is in women anyway? That's a little bit of a myth in the sense that because the diagnosis was built on studies about men, particularly white men, it is more difficult for women, it's more difficult for black and brown folks, et cetera, to get a diagnosis. So we don't actually know because there are all of these barriers in place for people who aren't white men to get a diagnosis. So it's really hard to get a sense of whether that's actually accurate or not. And I mean, okay, so misperceptions, and I'm so sorry, I, I, I find it so fascinating. So misconceptions, I, you know, I'm, I'm told, and the reason why I said what I said about this niece in, in my family, you know, I noticed immediately, number one, she wasn't making eye contact. That was immediate when I went, and we were at a, at a little picnic outside, and she was, she was less verbal. She, matter of fact, she was nonverbal. And she just came over, like, you know, she literally stayed segregated from the group when I met her that, that minute. I mean, we were, they were having a little picnic. And I remember this little child who's out of, there's seven people over here and she's over there by herself and she wouldn't look over at anybody else. And she saw me and I should say, clearly this is my wife's family. My wife is Caucasian. And she saw me and I think it just hit her. That dude's different. And she came over, she jumped on my lap and she wrapped her hand around my head and she just kept rubbing my head. And she was, she was looking off in the, in the space. And I was like, you know, I, I said her name a couple of times and she looked over at me and she looked at, she looked over at me. She wouldn't look me in the eye, but she kept looking over at me. And I thought, this is just a little bit odd, especially I, this is the first time I had met this family. And then I kept paying attention to her and recognized there were several other things that she was doing that just, and when I say odd, I don't mean that, that, that in any negative way, but she was just different. And I said, do you guys, do you, has anybody ever checked her to see if she might be autistic? Because, I mean, you know, they're, they're making some really unbelievable strides right now. I mean, clearly she wants it. And the fact that she even sat on my lap and she was hugging me and holding me surprised her family because she wouldn't touch anybody. She would really scream out if somebody tried to grab her. And, um, and they were like, no, 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 she's not autistic. No, no, that's not true. And I was okay, well, I let it go. And then, you know, I just kept pressing it a little bit every now and then with some people. And then finally, they reached out and tried to seek some help. And then now she's been getting help ever since, become a little bit more verbal. Um, But is that, are there some general signs that people should look at to, to see whether or not a person might be on the spectrum? I think it's tricky, right? I often say I personally have a really good sense for whether somebody is autistic or not. It's that in-group versus out-group situation. But certainly, I mean, that lack of eye contact is definitely a a clue. I think it's so strange, right, that our culture views making eye contact as a sign of paying attention, acknowledgement, and respect. Because there's certainly other cultures 
that don't view it that way, that actually view a lack of eye contact looking away as respectful. And that's one of those things where I'll say, look, this is an area where it's not that this is an inherent difficulty. This is something where the way that our culture and society is built actually disables autistic people. View that as kind of like this verb, this disabling that happens because of the way that our culture is built. But that's definitely a sign. I love the story about her (laughs) rubbing your head. Uh, My guess is that she was a bit overstimulated in that moment and saw that you were a safe person. And uh, I don't know if you know, but repetitive movement is something that autistic people do to calm themselves down. So that's probably what she was doing and rubbing your head is that was a stable sensation that she could pay attention to, to help calm herself down and feel safe. Wow. And now while you were, what was it like for you? You told me about that one parent teacher meeting, but what was it like for you in general going to school with other kids? Did the other kids sense something different or were you ostracized? Were you looked at as one of the regular kids? I think it was hard. You know, kids did have a sense that I was different and that's something that's taught, right? Very young kids will play with anybody, will connect with anybody But that stigma and bigotry that they begin to pick up from adults in their life where, you know, they see the teacher maybe looking at me a little strangely or treating me a little different. Kids pick up on that and they start to treat you different as well. I actually failed out of school, which is something that happens often to kids with disabilities and particularly with black and brown kids with disabilities. We know that when we're thinking about uh, the school to prison pipeline, for example, that kids with disabilities, black and brown kids get suspended, pushed out of school. And we got cops in schools, they get arrested more often. And so as we're thinking about the ways that we treat people in our society who are different, we can draw a clear line from the way that kids like me, black and brown kids are treated in school and how they end up later in life. And I think about the privilege that I had as a little white girl who was short, painted as a bad kid, but not seen as threatening because of the color of my skin, because of my gender. And yeah, got pushed out of school. But my parents, my mom was able to homeschool me. Um, She was able, she always says that first year afterwards is sort of rebuilding my confidence and making me feel like I wasn't a bad kid. I was a kid with potential. But I think about those experiences when I think about the ways that our policies around education need to change. And what year were you, what, what grade were you in when you were, when you failed out of schools? Second grade. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and was that because of behavioral difficulties while you were in classes? Absolutely. I was in the principal's office every single day because I was supposedly acting out when in reality, my needs just weren't being met. Right. You know, every kid with a disability, if they have the right supports and services, can have an integrated public education that not only works for them, but helps the kids around them understand that disability is a natural part of our society. You're nailing it. I, I like, I, I'm older than you, but you know, I'm a product of busing. So, you know, when I was bused to school early on and I was bused to all white schools and um, it was really interesting. I also, I don't know, I've never been tested, but I know that when I was very, very young, I was extremely verbal because I had a father who I'm the youngest of four. My father required that my older siblings, he was a shift worker. So when he would be home for four days and he would be gone for eight days, those four days that he was home, he required us to sit at the dinner table with him. And he required my 
three older siblings to come to the table every night with four words that they had looked up in the Webster Dictionary they could spell or use in a sentence and knew the definition of. And of course, you know, by the time I was maybe three, he would make my older siblings teach me four words so that I would participate also. So by the time I went to elementary school, I literally had a, you know, in the first grade, I had a, a fifth grade vocabulary and fifth grade reading and writing ability. And so, you know, not that I was um, ADHD or anything. I just was a kid who, you know, you put a project on my desk. Uh, we would have spelling tests. I did spelling tests in three seconds and it starts smacking kids in the back of the head because nobody was, you know, I, I wanted to play with somebody because I'm done in three seconds I, and I get an A on them. And so, but I had, I was met with some resistance from some teachers, but I also had another teacher. I also was able to draw and I could draw very well. And so I had this one teacher who recognized that and thought the second I got done my work, she would give me a piece of paper and go, go in the hallway and draw, you know, a turkey for coming up Thanksgiving, go in the hallway and draw the pilgrims, go in the hallway and draw this, that, and the other. And so I literally got, I think my first mm, three, four years of education, I spent, I was always in the hallways. There was one point in time when, you know, I had my mother sew together two white sheets so that I could make a two sheet wide turkey for Thanksgiving that they hung outside. And I was painting on the floor and and, and, and uh, that's what kept me occupied. So I wasn't getting in trouble being sent to the, 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 the principal's office, which I would have been because I didn't have anything, if I didn't have anything to do. So at least, and I was very fortunate because as much as I had teachers who didn't like the idea of integration, I had a couple of them who were very pro-integration. And so they were trying to make sure that we succeeded as much as there were others trying to make sure we failed. And I wish that they would do that more with kids like yourself. And if they had given you something to do, you know, while you were acting out, I think you probably would have ended up staying in the general population, right? I think so. Right. When we think about kids that get labeled as bad or naughty or troublemakers, more often than not, those are kids that are bored or those are kids who might not be bored, but maybe the material that's being presented to them isn't being presented in a way that allows them to actually learn it. I do think when we meet the needs of kids, when we provide the proper supports to teachers in the classroom to be able to ensure that kids succeed, that makes a really big difference. We're looking at a school situation where teachers are overworked and underpaid and aren't provided the resources that they need to support not just kids who have individual education plans or 504 plans, but all kids. Teachers are really struggling to meet the needs of kids right now because they don't have the resources to do so. And how were you feeling, Jessica? What was going on in Jessica when you were, you got to fail fail out of school in the second grade? Now you're Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. You know, there's no problem. There's no, all those things that other kids are doing. How did Jessica feel? It took a little while for me to get my confidence back. But, you know, the thing about growing up as a queer disabled kid is that you get a thick skin really early on, which I find particularly helpful in politics because I can't make everybody happy, but I can try to make as many people in my district as happy as possible. So it was tough. But I'm also stubborn, you know, so you tell me I'm bad, you tell me I can't do something, then I'm going to put my mind to, to doing that thing. Gotcha. And, you know, that's another thing. And I, what you just said, you're, you're 
a queer disabled kid, but when did you realize that you were a queer kid? When did you, when did that hit you? I think pretty early on, uh, you know, and I grew up in a very religious family. So that was tough for me because I was always taught that being gay was a sin. And so to grow up having this like secret that I held inside of me that felt dirty because of the way that I was raised, you know, I was a pastor's kid Mm. and here I was (laughs) thinking about women, having crushes on women, you know, and it was the secret that I carried inside of myself until college when, you know, I was away from my family. So I was able to, to come out to some people, but certainly, you know, being a queer elected official and being out about that is a whole other level. And oh. when there's news coverage and, and all of those things, sure, <laughs> you know, have, it's, it's rough. You happen to be a bisexual elected official who is married to a man so you appear to be in a heterosexual relationship but at the same time you're bisexual yes and that's a whole other politics within the lgbtq community right so here i am i'm a bi woman but i'm married to a man and my argument is that doesn't change my sexuality i'll i'll tell straight friends i'm like you're married right but you still notice when somebody's cute you know, you still can look at a, an actor in a television show and go, mm, yep, yep. Uh, and I say, I'm married to a man, but that doesn't change the fact that I notice that women are beautiful. So I'm still, you know, still part of the community. But sure. there is this privilege in passing as straight that keeps me safer than some of my friends and other community members who, who don't have that kind of safety. And so, you know, just the idea of you going off to college, you had not been diagnosed at that point in time, right? Right. So this was just an evolution that your parents assumed. Did you, had you already come out to them about being gay? No, you hadn't done that either. No. So I did not come out to my parents until, oh goodness, I think I was 23 or 24, honestly. Uh, You know, so I was out to almost everybody else, but not really to my family. And I was beginning to get involved in a lot more LGBTQ activism that was starting to get press coverage. And I wanted my parents to find it out from me and not so much from from the news. It was a tough conversation. And it's still not something that we really talk about. Now, we talked about it. Now, it's it's like we pretend (laughs) that didn't happen. And that's hard. It's really difficult. But I know it's tough for my parents, too. So they must they must quake every time the news talk about you as an LGBTQ supporter, right? I haven't asked. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, look, I, I got to pay some bills. I want to come back. I want to talk about what it's been like since uh, since uh, you just assumed office here in January and how it's been going so far. Let's find out a little bit about it. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your campaign. And I want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now in America, too. OK, sure. Let me take a break. Let me pay some bills. And we are joined by Jessica Benham, who is a newly elected you know, state representative in Pennsylvania. Um, she is openly LGBTQ plus woman and the first openly autistic person to be elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. And honestly, doing an unbelievable job schooling us all on differences in our society. So thank you so much for being here and being a part of the show. I'm take a break. Jessica, we'll be back right after this. Hey guys, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Free Thinking with my talent. I am, again, so proud to have the guest that I have on today, Jessica Benham, who is a 
uh, newly elected legislator in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania Assembly. She's a union organizer. She's a community leader, an advocate, a role model. She's the first openly LGBTQ plus woman and first openly autistic person to be elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. And she works really, really hard at, at staying true to our own words, which is fighting for a world where we will never have to hide from who we are to be seen as capable of serving our communities. And thank you so much, Jessica, for being here and serving our communities. Oh, thank you again for having me. Sure thing. Now, again, you assumed office in early January. You took the oath. Um, what was that day like for you? So I walked into the rotunda in the Capitol in Harrisburg, which is literally gilded. Uh, and I honestly was speechless because people like me don't get to do this. You know, when, when people first asked me to run for office, I literally laughed. I was like, yeah, the, the bisexual autistic 29 year old should definitely run for state legislator. And so to be in this place where I am overwhelmed by the beauty and the history and the magnitude of the trust that my community has placed in me was, was incredible. So I was, I was blown away. I was, I was literally speechless walking into that building. And the campaign trail, how was that? Was it okay on the campaign trail? Were you, were you met with a lot of protesters, a lot of resistance? How was that? Well, it was different, right? Because we were campaigning under this COVID-19 pandemic. And so it was definitely not the typical campaign. Not so much that I would know since it's the first time running for office for me. But I, I certainly received some resistance and some comments from folks who weren't so sure about a young woman, never mind the whole bisexual autistic situation as well. But as people got to know me, as I you know, knocked doors in January and then started to make phone calls in, in February and March, people got to really know who I was as a person. And they found that that transparency, that authenticity was something that they could get behind. You know, the fact that I was open, not only about who I was, but about what my platform was, that I had the background and the expertise to back that up, you know, people liked that. And so it took a little bit of time, but you know, at, at the end of the day, we, we won that primary, we won that general election, and I have been so honored to have the trust and support of my community as I fight for them in the state house. And how do you feel like, you know, right after the election, you know, uh... We end up going through this period of time when, you know, you've got an entire segment of society trying to say that, you know, the election in Pennsylvania was all fake. Uh, and, and I guess it, was, it wasn't all fake. It was only fake for one person, but it was real for everybody else. Right. <laughs> um, but then but then again, that does cast an aspersion on everybody else. So what did you think of that? That disconnect, right, where my colleagues in the state house, my Republican colleagues signed a letter saying that they believed that the election in Pennsylvania for President Trump was fraudulent. These are my colleagues. And so being sworn in that day alongside all of, all of these people who believed that their elections were valid, but that the election upticket was not, was unbelievable to me. But things were relatively calm in the state house. It was next door in the state Senate where things got quite rowdy. And I don't know if you saw but there were two things that happened with the state Senate. At first, uh, Senator, State Senator Brewster, who represents part of my district as well, we overlap districts in Brentwood and Baldwin, very narrowly 
won a race, 69 votes against his Republican opponent. And so when it came to swearing in day, the Republican controlled Senate refused to swear him in. And they kicked out Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. They literally, he is supposed to run the meetings of the Senate and they, they booted him out and they refused to swear in this state senator. And of course, while that was happening, state senator, Republican state senator Doug Mastriano, he rented two buses and sold tickets to take people to the Capitol in D.C. for that riot, that assault on our Capitol. And these are people who are my colleagues. And so I'm sitting there and I have this commitment to accountability and transparency and honesty. You know, I do like live streams twice a week that I call Recap with Rep Jess. And I tell, this is what I've done this week for you. This is what's going on. This is what's coming up. And to watch my colleagues not only lie about the election, but incite this revolt, this assault on our capital, it's unbelievable to me and counter to the oath that we had taken. Are you afraid that there's going to be more protests tomorrow or yeah, tomorrow? It's no. definitely concerning. So our state capital is shut down and we're not in session this week. So nobody's really up there, but I also closed my district office. So we're all working from home. Uh, of course we had, uh, Monday was, was off. Our district office was closed, but you know, today, tomorrow, depending on how things go, maybe Thursday, my district office will be closed and out of an abundance of caution. But, you know, as an out queer person, as an openly autistic person, I just want to make sure, you know, not only that I'm aware of my own safety, but that I'm keeping my staff safe as well, because there has been outright white nationalist organizing in some parts of my district. Um, and Overly threatening you? Not overly threatening me, um, but folks who, you know, like the Proud Boys have been organizing in one of the Southern boroughs. It's, it's a concern. I mean, we're looking at folks who are Nazis, essentially. So I'm definitely concerned not only about what's going on in our nation's capital, but what's happening right here in Pennsylvania. It's, it's why I keep organizing, right? You know? Where do you think this is headed, Jessica? I mean, where, where do you think we are headed as a nation? I mean, we've got, you know, everybody's focused on tomorrow, but I say tomorrow is nothing more than, you know, the very tip of the wick. I mean, you know, there's plenty more time for this candle to burn. And um, it just appears to me that, that uh, two questions. One, where do you think we're headed in, let's say, the next 30 to 60 days? And two, you've been out there talking to, pressing the flesh and talking to, even if it's by phone and through this medium. What do these people want at the end of the day? So what do you think is going to happen in the next 30, 60 days? And what do you think they want? So I think we're at a real tipping point, and that makes it honestly difficult to predict what's going to happen in the next couple months. Certainly, we could see an increase in violence. That is a definite possibility. But it's it's also quite possible that as you know, the president-elect is sworn in, that temperatures could begin to lower and that things could calm down. It's, it is hard to say, and I think a lot of it is dependent upon how Trump behaves after he leaves office. Now, when it comes to what these people want, I think one of the things as a white elected official that I feel is important for me to do is think about how we reach 
the folks who look like me and who hold on to this white nationalist thinking. I think that's really important for me to do. So I like to think a lot about their motivations and, and about what it is that they want. And well, I think if you, when I've asked this question, I've asked this question to people. I, mean, what, I, I say, what do you want? Do you want to go back to a time when you were able to own people? Do you want to go back to a time when you were able to kill people indiscriminately, lynch them, hang them in the street just because you felt like it? Is, is it a time when you want to go back to raping people? Because that was also a part of this whole white nationalist movement at the turn of the century. Do you, do, do you want to be at a time when you can enslave someone and make them work for you for free? What is it that you want? I want to get my country back. What the hell does that mean? Where, where was it at a time when those days were good old days? Yeah, what does it mean? When was America great? What are we going back to? These are the questions, right? And I think at the end of the day, a lot of this thinking is based in fear, right? These are people who feel unheard, forgotten, and like they don't have a path toward success. And they're looking for somebody to blame. And President Trump gave them a scapegoat. He gave them people to blame. And so when we're thinking about what these people want, what they want is somebody to blame for their lack of success, for their lack of economic opportunity in life. They're, they're looking for a scapegoat. And what I think is really important and what I'm continuing to do is we shouldn't just organize when we're focused on electing candidates because the way to reach these people is through personal relationships and hard conversations. And it's, Somebody like me has to talk to these people and say, you know, what is it that you need to feel secure and successful? And how do we help rebuild this bridge that you have broken? How do we find justice and help folks understand that, you know, having white privilege, for example, doesn't mean you haven't struggled in life. It just means that your struggles in life weren't because of the color of your skin or because of structural racism. And so to reach people and almost deprogram them a little bit requires those kinds of really difficult personal conversations. And, and so what I'm doing is saying, you know, I'm, I'm not up for re-election for another two years, but I haven't stopped organizing. We're still doing phone banks. We're still doing text banks. We're still having those tough conversations, but around issues. So, you know, this Saturday, I'm doing a phone bank with a whole group of folks, and we're going to be talking to our neighbors about our court system, about criminal justice, because there's coming up potentially in Pennsylvania a ballot measure that would gerrymander our statewide judicial districts, which could have huge impacts on civil rights, on union organizing, on reproductive justice. And so to, to call our neighbors and say, hey, this is something that's coming up. Let's talk about our carceral system. Let's talk about mass incarceration. Let's talk about what justice really looks like. You know, we can have those conversations around issues. And I think so often when we're trying to reach folks, we're trying to get them to vote for somebody. We're trying to get something from them. And so to change that focus to how do we change people's minds on these issues? How do we get them to stop blaming folks that don't look like them or don't think like them or don't live like them? How do we get them to understand that the only way we move forward is together, that our liberation is 
is bound up together, that none of us are free till all of us are free. We have to start with issues. We can't be like, hey, you got to vote for this charismatic person. You know, that's that's the way I see it. And when, you, when you're talking about the justice system, I mean, you know, we're looking at a system that went from being government run to privately owned. And so are we really talking about a system that is has something to do with justice or financial remuneration for those who own the buildings and they want to keep them filled? And so they look for excuses to fill them up with people. Absolutely. I don't think that we really have a justice system anymore. I like, I've, you know, folks will call it the criminal injustice system or the carceral system or whatever they want to call it. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think about the jail in our county, our Allegheny County Jail. 80% of the folks in there either have a diagnosed mental health issue or they've got substance use disorder. So that means that at least 80% of that jail is somebody who's got a disability, who could be diverted into community-based treatment to address those things. And the vast majority of that jail, folks that are just waiting to go to trial, they've not been convicted of a crime. They're just sitting there because they can't afford bail. That's ridiculous. It's heartbreaking. And then if you factor in the fact that jail is inherently traumatizing, that means that that system is disabling people. So when we think about disability, not as something that's necessarily inherent in the body or the mind, but as something that happens through these systems, I think that's really important, right? So this carceral system disables people. The fact that, um, you know, when we're looking at environmental issues, for example, the fact that polluters are concentrated in poor communities and in communities of color, and so you got issues like asthma and everything else, we're looking at a system where those polluters are disabling people. And we have to ask the question, what kinds of people is that happening to? And why are we allowing it to happen? Exactly, exactly. And so we, this system is disabling people. And that's the way that I look at it. I'm like, we got to have justice, but it's not found through these systems, which continually disable folks. And now these are clearly two of your major issues that you're fighting for. What are, what, are some of, what are some of the other issues that you ran on for your platform? Yeah. So before the pandemic, I would say the top issue that I had conversations with folks about was around healthcare. As here again, we got a system where, you know, maybe you got health insurance, but can you actually afford to use it between the co-pays and the co-insurance and getting nickel and dimed every time you turn around? I mean, that was a huge thing. Um, after the pandemic started and more and more folks were trying to get their unemployment checks, you know, our unemployment system in Pennsylvania is fundamentally broken. It's underfunded and understaffed. So I got folks in my district who've been waiting six or seven months. They're owed like $15,000 in unemployment and they're looking at being evicted because our government can't get it together to get them that check. So I'm working on making sure I got two things going on. Um, you know, For the unemployment issue, I got a bill to address the funding and staffing problems. And then on healthcare, I've got a, a bill that I think might have a chance of making it through this Republican controlled state legislature because it's fairly limited, but it's making sure that at least testing, prevention and treatment for COVID-19, 100% covered, no coinsurance, no cost share and none of those things. So, you know, those are, I would say, my top two issues. Of course, I'm focused on environment, focused on creating uh, economic opportunity. And, you know, we talked earlier, we talked about education, but I'd say equitable education funding is really important because right now, the zip code a kid lives in, that determines the quality of education that they get. And I think that that's unacceptable. 
And what about uh, addressing the employment or, or high unemployment rate for people with disabilities? Oh, that is a huge issue. So there's a couple things that have happened in the state of Pennsylvania, which is really exciting, which is that um, we have passed two bills uh, in the past couple cycles that are really focused on ensuring that kids in high school and college who've got disabilities are provided a, a pathway towards employment. So making sure, you know, if a if a kid's graduating high school, that they got a plan for, you know, what kind of training program they're going to go into to get a good job, that we're enabling the Office of Vocational Rehab to have the staffing and the resources to work with kids as young as 14 to ensure that they got a plan for what their future looks like. So that's something that's already happened that's really exciting. A thing I'm working on right now um, is a bill to address medical assistance for workers with disabilities. So this is a program under Pennsylvania's medical assistance that allows people with disabilities to work and earn a certain amount of money and still qualify for Medicaid to get all of their uh, medical needs covered. It's a really important program, but the problem is that that income cap, that asset cap is so limiting. And so it keeps folks with disabilities in poverty in order to be able to you know, both work and also keep their health insurance. And so one of the bills we're working on right now is something that would gradually increase that income cap to help address this fact of uh, workers with disabilities still living in poverty. Excellent. And then um, how about, you know, I'm sure that you've heard from the LGBT community since we've been elected, major support? Yeah, absolutely. We're working on a couple different bills there. Um, I've got one that would pass statewide non-discrimination uh, for LGBTQ people when we're thinking about every industry from housing to health insurance to employment, uh, because right now we don't have statewide protections. So, you know, I live in Pittsburgh, and so because my municipality has passed non-discrimination, I'm protected. But if I wanted to get a job in the middle of the state, I could be fired just because I'm part of the LGBTQ community. And so we're working on that bill. We've got a second bill that would ban convergent therapy, um, which some folks are calling conversion abuse because it's not really therapeutic. So we're working on that bill. And then the last one is to start collecting data. So it would create this basically optional checkbox on all government forms to check, you know, if you're part of the LGBTQ community. Perfectly optional, you know, because we don't want folks to feel pressured to check it. But it's a way for us to begin to understand through data what services LGBTQ people are accessing and what the needs of our community are. And that's really important because it allows us to make the case that the LGBTQ community has particular needs and we need to address them. So that would be the third piece that I'm working on. Right now, are you a little afraid though that that data could then be used against the LGBTQ community? Potentially. Uh, we also would want to make sure in the bill it's about, uh, you know, anonymous data. So it's all pulled together as opposed to being about individual people. But that's always a concern, right? It is always a concern that something intended to help our community will be weaponized against our community. And I think that's true for every marginalized group. Sure. You know, a couple of years ago, I spent some time in Pennsylvania lobbying for cannabis legislation reform. And where do you stand on that? Yeah, so I think it's a complex issue. I am definitely pro-legalizing it. But the <laughs> I think, you know, when you legalize it, you end up with rich white people running dispensaries. Meanwhile, you still got folks sitting in jail because they were caught with a little bit of <laughs> marijuana. And so I think we have to be careful how we do it. We have to ensure that this, you know, releases folks out of, out of prison. We got to make sure that the legislation... Um, 
provides that any kind of tax income that the government makes goes back to reinvesting in communities that were over-policed in the so-called war on drugs. I'm, I'm definitely pro-legalizing it, but I want to make sure that it doesn't turn into another industry where rich white folks profit off of it, the government profits off of it, and communities that were destroyed by over-policing see nothing. Sorry. And I, I'll just, just what would you like to add, add something? What else would you like to add? Well, let's see. I mean, we've talked about a lot of issues. It feels like I'm I'm trying to think if there's anything that we haven't really touched on. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that I would say is, you know, folks are whole people. And I've really appreciated in this conversation that you've allowed me to be my whole self, right? That we've talked about the ways in which disability intersects with race, inter- intersects with gender, intersects with uh, sexual orientation. And that's a rare thing, right? So often I enter a space and I'm expected to be, you know, the the bi representative who's caring about this meeting that we're having on LGBTQ issues, or I'm entering a space that I'm just supposed to focus on disability. When at the end of the day, we know that those intersections and the way that power structures around us impact folks at every one of those intersections are really important to pay attention to. So I'm, I'm grateful that you've provided the space to talk about that. Well, I'm so grateful that you had took the time out of your schedule to really sit down and school us a little bit. I'd love to have you back anytime you want. Any issue that comes up that you want to talk about, you have a free opportunity to talk about it right here on Free Thinking with my talk. Oh, thank you. I so appreciate that. And uh, absolutely, if there's ever anything you want me to talk about, you can feel free to invite me back to. Absolutely. Well, you guys have been listening to Miss Jessica Benham, who is a state elected official now, part of the Pennsylvania General Assembly, and uh, schooling us all on disability rights, rights of human beings, forget just disability, rights of all of us, and helping us understand a little bit more about what we need to do to be more inclusive as a nation. Thank you so much, Jessica, for being a part of the show today. And thank you for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments.